say if there was a, if there was a person that wanted to contact you and wanted to do a boudoir shoot with you, but they were feeling really nervous, right? Like, what kind of advice would you give them? I just I usually start. See, I'm the worst with answering emails, and I've <laughs> I've had people tell me you need to reword stuff better, and I'm like, but that's not me. Me, I usually tell people, you know, it's okay to be nervous. It's okay to feel anxious about doing this, but you're doing this for you. Mm-hmm. Yes, you say you're doing this for your husband. Yes, you say you're doing this for your boyfriend or whatever, but this is for you. This is for you to fall back in love with your body, with yourself, with how you want to live your life. This has nothing to do with just gifting somebody some fancy pictures. I want you to come with that in your head. That I want you to come for you and not for other people. So that's a big thing for me. And I always tell them, I'm like, I got your back. I'm here. You know, like if you feel like crying, cry. If you feel like you want to dance naked in the middle of my living room, we'll do that too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like I don't want people to feel uncomfortable and not that they can't associate with who I am as a person. So I want them to come and be like their original self and not feel like that they have to like put on a show and just let me take control of how they're posing and how their mood is. You know, like I'll sit down. If I've had people say, can I meet with you before we even book? And I'm like, mm-hmm. for sure. Because I'd rather you know who I am. This is this is me. I'm quirky. I'm weird. And this is, this is how I shoot. You know, I always crack jokes and I swear like a trucker. And you know, like <laughs> this, is, this is who I am. Yeah. And when I go, even when I go do wedding consults, my friends always like, we need to tone it down. I'm like, but this is who I am. Yeah. And they're going to hire me because they want to have fun and because they want to do this with me, not yeah. because I'm toned down and prissy. Mm-hmm. That's not who I am. So I'm the same way with my boudoir clients. I want them to know who I am before they even come to my house. That was Guelph-based photographer Julia Basato. I met with Julia a couple weeks ago to talk about her photography. While she classifies herself as a boudoir photographer, Julia has recently garnered a lot of attention out of a project she's doing called the Manny Series. The series depicts average people of various sizes, body types, cultural backgrounds, and sexualities holding mannequin in front of them, usually with a message painted on the front. This series is effectively complicating narratives surrounding beauty, and Julia's work as a whole is offering varying perspectives that we don't usually see in boudoir photography. She's also cool as hell. In case you were wondering, I'm Beth Bowles, and this is TCE Radio. So a couple of your photos have been taken off Instagram, and you alluded to being banned. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? So, I didn't know that you were banned. Yeah, I was banned on Facebook. That's what made this go viral. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah. They banned me for 30 days. They deleted four of the images. On Facebook? On or? Facebook. Okay. So on Facebook, they deleted me for 30 days. Everything I put up is censored. So if I see a nipple, yeah. if I see anything in the, the nether regions that's, yeah. that's out there, yeah. I censor everything. I have people that have families that follow me. Yeah. You know? So I try to cover as much as possible. And I still don't think hiding nudity from kids is, a, is I think it's an issue. Mm-hmm. I think you shouldn't hide nudity from kids. I think yep. nudity is not sexuality. It has nothing to do with sex. It's the body. Yeah, And I of think course. still there's too many parents that hide stuff from that. And that's what makes people 
a little weird, a little sex sometimes, and that drives me crazy. Yeah. And that's I'm like, everybody should see a naked body. I don't care. But they deleted four pictures, and because it was like bang, 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 they're like, you're banned for a month. You can't touch anything. You can't. You can't go into your Facebook. You can go in and read. But you can't, like, I could still sign in, but I couldn't comment. I couldn't delete anything. I couldn't, they're like, you need to delete this picture. You need to, I'm like, how? You just banned me for a month. I can't do anything. Yeah. So I made another profile, and I was able to still be on on Facebook. But the whole Instagram thing is something totally different. I still put up stuff, and people report it or delete it from there, too. So I just, I'm like, I hide everything. How is it going beyond your your regulations, your community regulations about sexuality? When I see like, people literally having sex in other Instagram accounts, mm-hmm. but somebody's nipple was near scene, mm-hmm. but it wasn't out, and it was deleted. Julia definitely relies on social media a lot to showcase her photography. Her Instagram page currently has 17.8 thousand followers. If you haven't checked it out, you can find her at Julia Basato Photography. But one of her biggest obstacles is how people are constantly reporting her images and her artwork is being taken off of social media. She offered a ton of perspectives as to how this poses problems for how we view beauty and even sexuality and even love. If you haven't yet, pick up the newest issue of the Community Edition to read my full story about Julia. And now a message from our sponsors. Hey, it's Misty here from the City of Kitchener's downtown team, here to tell you about the killer event lineup we have happening across downtown this summer from June to August. The calendar was printed in May's issue of the Community Edition, and I have Christy Skelton here with me today uh, to talk about Luna Market that's kicking off the event season on June 1st. Luna Market is really excited to be the opening and closing events for Feminist Fridays. Uh, We are on Night Market, focusing on supporting indie designers, eco-friendly holistic living, and alternative healing in the DTK. Yeah, so Luna Market's happening on Friday, June 1st from 7pm to 10pm outside of Kitchener City Hall. You can find the full calendar listing at downtownkitchener.ca slash summer. Sometimes I surprise myself and then I laugh. I know I can't lie to myself. I'm this good. Imagine if I tried it all compared to Jordan and I don't even have to ball. Just great hits like Gretzky. Just shoot and I'm aiming for the net C. Yo. <laughs> that was 66190 by a local producer and sometimes rapper, Curtis Rideout, also known as Steve Dave. Uh, I personally have known Curtis for about a year and a half, I would say. We met almost two years. We met yeah. um, we met camp. last summer at, at camp. Yeah. So Curtis is here with me right now. Um, we're going to talk today about a story that he just wrote for the May issue of the Community Edition. Um, it was our cover story, and it's a big, beautiful feature with really nice pictures inside called The Show That Almost Wasn't at the Venue That Almost Was. So, hey, Curtis. How's it going? Hey, Beth. Hey, Community Edition readers and listeners of the podcast, I am doing well, thank you. <laughs> today is going great for me. Yeah, it's super nice out today. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm like so happy that the cold weather's behind us. Yeah, that's great. Um, so, Curtis, tell me a little bit about yourself. Oh, man. This, this is like the worst because you hate like talking about yourself yeah like in that way i love talking but like are you uncomfortable right now no 
I'm sorry. I'm just like watching the EQ, trying to like not t- <laughs> not talk too loud. Literally um, before we started recording, I was like, Curtis, if you're gonna drink water, drink far away from the mic. Those were the instructions that I gave you. And now and I, I just, feel like you're hyper aware now. Well, I just drank like as soon as you said that, I just drank right in front of the mic. You can probably hear me swallowing on that intro. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyways. Um. Yeah. I moved here like a year ago. Um. Last week. Um. And. Yeah, I came here to run the newspaper at Laurier, The Cord. Uh, it was a fantastic experience, some good writing experience. Um, kind of put me on a platform that allowed me to do the things I'm going to do now. Um, but yeah, in the past year, I've also made a lot of connections in the local music scene, and that was kind of where that story came from, more or less. Um, <clears throat> I think you're, just to interject about that, like as someone who I met Curtis, um, like I said, two years ago when I was editor-in-chief of The Cord, um, Curtis went to Laurie's Brantford campus, uh, but he was involved in uh, Brantford's student newspaper, The Sputnik. So that's how I came to meet him. Um, and But I think Curtis is such a perfect example of somebody who didn't grow up here in the traditional sense. I mean, you grew up in the region. You're from Drumbo, correct? Yeah, I, w- to- I was born here. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. You Yeah, you were born in Kitchener, but then you grew up in Drumbo and you went to high school in Paris. So he's kind of like, I think Curtis is the perfect perfect example of somebody who wasn't raised here but came here and really dove into the KW community head first like you were here for a couple of months and you had developed this tight-knit group of friends um, outside of work like in your social life and I think that's kind of where this piece came to be Um, and I think also that that also came that also came to be with your interest in music Mm -hmm. so do you want to tell us a little bit about your involvement with um, with Dylan, who you interviewed for the for the story that you wrote. Hey, so uh, so Dylan was the guy. He's behind the Hellcat. That was the the, the focus of the story. Was this uh, DIY venue that almost was? And um, Dylan's actually like one of the first connections I made when I first moved here. And I heard about him through the Community Edition. Actually, um, the editor, the former editor Megan, had a story pitched about him. And um, like Sam Nabby, the former web director. Former web manager at Wilusip. He's also a local rapper. Yeah, he's on my mixtape actually. Check that out. But anyways, yeah, Sam Nabby was one of the people who kind of pointed me towards Dylan, and then I don't know. I just sh- shot him a message on Facebook. I messaged him on Three Nines. Actually, like I'm in the back end of um, the Three Nines. That's Three Nines compact cassettes, by the way. Um, I'm partnering with Dylan on that, and I'm in the back end of that, and it was pretty cool. I like went in and I looked at the first message that the page received, and it was from me. The first message ever that the yeah. Three Nines Facebook page received yeah. was from you. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so like I, I didn't know like what was going on with him, like what his plans were. When I first met him, I was just like, oh man, it'd be cool to put out a cassette. And now like I've been helping him with design and logistics stuff for like the past year. I like to call myself a fixer. That's like my current <laughs> my current job title. Yeah. But um, aside from that, yeah, just trying to uh, write and stay busy. I think it's definitely like your involvement with Dylan and with Three Nines um, has, and because you and I are friends on a personal and social level outside of the office place, you definitely opened up my eyes to this sort of community that I didn't even know existed in KW. Did you know, like before you met Dylan, did you know that there was such a large DIY community? Um, No, not at all, actually. Like I've never been a part of like any sort of 
music scene in my life like growing up in Drumbo it's like a really small town and then Brantford didn't really have too much of a music scene to dive into so I like I knew a couple local bands there but then when I came here and it's like it's hard to say that this is like because a lot of the people I knew kind of stumbled upon this scene at the same time as me and it was like around the time this that snake pit started last year and I started hearing about that and I started hearing like there was friends I had from Drumbo who were playing in bands around here that like played at the snake pit and like just like they knew Dylan I knew people who knew Dylan or whatever like what's it called six degrees of separation like yeah. all these people are like hella connected but it wasn't until like now that I've fully realized that like it's kind of like a rebirth I don't know like I wasn't here two years ago so I can't tell you what it was like then but I've heard a lot of stuff that like the scene kind of got split up the music scene here got split up and it was like you know punks here metalheads here but a lot of the people that I'm talking to now, they're booking like metal bands, they're booking folk, they're booking pop bands. Like it's like it's it's like a multi-genre thing, and there's like a lot more of a collective behind it as opposed to like individual people advancing their own individual interests. Yeah, if that makes I would, sense. I would definitely. I think classifying it as a rebirth um, is a good classification because like so in September when Koi happened at Maxwell's, I reported on Koi for the community edition. And I kind of framed Koi in this festival that was geared towards nostalgia for people living in KW right now that are predominantly in their early 30s that were really into KW's hardcore scene mm -hmm. um, to, what, 10, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, hardcore was at a prime. I wouldn't say it's prime, really? but it was at a prime in like 2005 to 2009 ish. Mm -hmm. um, so I was kind of always the, under the impression as somebody that was, so it, from 2005 to 2009, I was too young to engage in that hardcore scene. Um, and then when I was in high school, it started kind of like dying out. So I was under the impression that KW's predominant hardcore scene had, had kind of died out and wasn't wasn't fresh anymore but then you kind of introduced me to this new thing so I kind of I want to contextualize it a little bit more so for people who haven't read Curtis's story or listening to this podcast and they're like what the hell are they talking about right now do you want to tell everybody a little bit about um, what the snake pit is and what the hellcat is and just kind of what KWDIY means to you okay so I guess the, the snake pit around July last year Chris Walton one of the people I interviewed for um, for the story He's actually the, the guitar player and the singer in a band called Father Bodies. They've got an album coming out soon. Just wanted to throw that out there. Um, anyways, yeah, so Chris had this place, perfect location, just over on King Street here, not too far from where we're located right now. Um, and yeah, he, uh, he found out that he wasn't going to be able to live there beyond a year because they were tearing it down. So he was like, let's just throw shows here. And then, yeah, um, if you read the article... Obviously, there's like this, this will make more sense, but we're contextualizing. But sorry, you can cut that out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, uh, yeah, he was on this podcast called Take Her Wide with uh, Steve Vargas, I think the guy's name was. You might have to double check that. But and after he was on this podcast, uh, he started getting like requests to book this house venue, this like small ass house venue where it's like 30 people fit in this basement, and he's got bands from like all over the states and Canada trying to book it. And yeah, like none of them even realize that they're booking this tiny little house, but they all come and like, they all like end up with like over a hundred people sh coming, whether like they're hanging out in the basement or like throughout the house, like in and out. There's people like coming from a show at Chainsaw or whatever, like down the street. It, 
it almost became like an after party kind of place too yeah like there'd be two shows going on but the snake pit show would be starting later so everyone would just kind of like shift over there and and yeah it kind of like it it became its own thing over the year it was very natural and organic and like in the same way the hellcat was organic too as um dylan and Chris, they had this jam space that they were sharing with a few other bands, and it's called Elvis Freshly. That's what they dubbed it. I love that. Song. Yeah, it's the as, sickest as name. As somebody who's a fan of Elvis Presley, um, side note, my dad was an Elvis Presley impersonator. When I found out that the jam space was called Elvis Freshly, I just fell in love with that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's it's classic. There's a picture of Elvis on the door leading in. If you open up page seven of this month's issue of the Community Edition, you can see a picture of that door. Just a side note. Sorry, continue. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, they uh, they had this place called Elvis Freshly. They're renting it out, and there's, like, a few other units in it. And then one of the larger units in the building they're renting from, uh, it's, like, this got this, like, 80s dance club vibe, honestly. Like, that's the only way I could describe it. And, like, just the way it's set up, it's got, like, these two pillars in the middle, and it was just, like, really cool looking. And then there's, like, they had built a stage, whatever. What I'm trying to say is they found this, like, really, really cool spot, and it wasn't being used for much, just kind of, like, some after-party stuff. Like, I can't go into too much detail on that, but it, everyone was like, this is the perfect place for, like, a small, like, 100 to 200-person venue. Like, yeah. absolutely amazing. And, like, they, I think maybe, like, they had some practice jam sessions and stuff that went down, but the fire marshal ended up finding out about some of the larger shows they had planned, obviously, before they went down, and that kind of like put an end to it immediately but I, I like i don't think i don't think it's like impossible that it, it could be like started up but yeah it's to me like that's so disappointing um because like kw has a vast arts and culture scene obviously um and i mean we do have we like we do have venues we like we're very fortunate to have maxwell's and starlight um, Harmony Lunch is doing a ton of shows now, and then uh, Lot 42 is uh, becoming a larger venue for larger places. But I think if we want that arts and culture scene to thrive, we should be trying to make smaller venues like that happen. I know that there's legalities and logistics that have to go into um, that have to go into opening a new venue, uh, logistics and legalities that might might contradict the DIY brand, yeah, per se. Um, but it is, it's unfortunate something, that something like that happened. Um, so to kind of get back into the story that you wrote, I remember I remember Curtis first telling me about, um, I keep on like talking about you in third person, is that weird? Remember, I remember yeah. Curtis. Uh, <laughs> I think that fits um, the whole podcast thing. Is that, I don't even, I don't even know how to podcast. We're winging it. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I remember you telling me a couple, a couple months ago, I guess, about the Hellcat and I thought it was super cool. And then I remember you telling me about their first show, which was the Dirty Nil, which is a like fairly um, reputable Canadian punk band, and that they were doing their first show there. And I was just so excited. I'm like, where do I buy tickets? And you're like, there's like, I, w I was like, what's the link? Like, send me the link to buy tickets. And you're like, there is no link. Like, I'll get you tickets. You just have to know. And I felt like I was invited into this like secret, like underground society of like, punks that I had never been a part of that I was not cool enough to be a part of when I was 16 in high school um so I was really excited it was really awesome and then I was there the day that you talk about in the article the day that you found out that the Hellcat was being shut down by the fire marshal and that the show couldn't happen anymore I was with you when you 
I think I was with you when you got the text from Dylan. Mm-hmm. We were in the same office and you told me what happened and you just had to leave and you just had to meet with him. And that I think that moment was pivotal for so many people, especially the organizers, especially Dylan and Chris, who you talk about in the story. Um, but I think it was also pivotal for everybody who had got tickets or everybody that was excited, myself included, to be invited into this secret this secret show that felt so personal and felt so private. Yeah. I think it even had that effect too, like at the actual show. Mm-hmm. Like it still felt like very intimate. I mean like... Yeah, it did. The actual show that happened at night school. So for, for those of you, once again, that haven't read the story, the show did go on. Um, they had it at night school and it still kind of had the house show personal feel um because the band was playing like right on the floor mm-hmm. it was um, sweet yeah and so it was kind of at one point i mean one of the opening bands like the guitar player was like four inches away from my face like singing to me um so it yeah it did have the very like there wasn't that disconnect be- between the audience and uh the band which i think is what diy and house shows try to enforce but but yeah so i mean from from a friend standpoint and from somebody that is involved in the DIY, the DIY scene and that, and you have personal relationships with the organizers. Like what was that like for you finding out that things weren't working? Something so exciting wasn't going to work out. Honestly, I kind of like, I feel like I started that article on like Dylan sent me that message. He was like, yo, the Hellcat got raided. And like, I, like I say in the article, I I just, I summed it up perfectly. Well, I was more disappointed than surprised. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, at the end of the day, that's a pretty, like, to me, that was, like, an impactful statement. Like, I was upset by it, but I was just, like, this shit had gotten way too, way too big. Like, it was, and it was just too much hype. It just couldn't happen. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, it was, it would have been perfect if it all went down, but, like, like, a band that big and such, like, a cool, like, I don't even know. Like, it. Yeah. It was so... I don't even know what to say. <laughs> to, to like to add more context, um, when when you first found out about the show and about the Hellcat is when you pitched me that story. And yeah. when was that? That was like <clears throat> three months ago. Three months ago, yeah. you pitched me the story and you said that you wanted to write about it. You felt like it was more suitable for my newspaper than for your newspaper at the time, The Cord. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really excited about it. I was I was down for it, and so many events just transpired and transpired that the story just kept getting pushed yeah and i was getting frustrated because i wanted the story and you just kept on assuring me that like it couldn't happen now it wasn't the right time it wasn't ready um which i mean you definitely proved your point with the product that you produced at the end um but the whole process like this past three months of just talking about the story and about pushing the story and like waiting for the opportune time to tell this story um I think a lot, a lot more work went into it than maybe people realize, or a lot more, a lot more things happened in the time that you started on this story than anybody mm-hmm. may have thought, which was really interesting. It was really interesting to watch, I guess, all of the, because you would, you would update me every single time something yeah, would happen, and it was pretty really much. interesting to hear about. It was, like, mostly just so you wouldn't, like, tell me I couldn't write it and shit. I just had to, like, keep you interested a bit. But, yeah. uh, but like, at, at the end of the day, like, I had a feeling that the story was going to be good. And it's like I've said so many times, like, you had that story that you pitched about HMV when it was closing down. Yeah. And it was just, like, the per- like so many stories like that, I feel, I, like, as a journalist and all that BS, like, you'll just feel it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that story will happen and you'll be like, oh, shit. And it's like, yeah, I'm friends with Dylan. I'm friends with a lot of people that are involved with the story. But that doesn't take away from 
my ability <coughs> to create a narrative around it. You know what I mean? Like aspects of being biased and like not not being objective in this sense. Like that's what allowed me to tell the story, being actually embedded in it. I'm so exhausted by the confines of journalism, which I think is something that you and I could have a good conversation about, and maybe we will right now. But um, <laughs> like, I'm so exhausted by being restricted uh, into not being able to tell stories that you have some sort of personal connection with. Um, I think that my best writing comes from when I love or hate something. Yeah. Um, which I also feel like like you're really close to too. Like I remember um, one of one of my favorite memories uh, from working with Curtis. Curtis and I did share an office together. We were in the same room and then there was a great a great flood, the great flood of 2018, which <laughs> made us have to go into two separate rooms. Um, but one of my favorite memories from working with you was when Lil Peep died. Uh-uh. So <laughs> Curtis's face just fell. Um, so for those of you who don't know, uh, Lil Peep was this, I, I'm going to explain him and then you're going to get mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Um, say what you guys say. Lil Peep was this very young, um, rapper that was mixing genres. A lot of people called it emo rap, if that's what you want to call it. Um, but he was, a he was a beautiful and very talented lyricist. His, his words were something that, um, I hadn't heard in a long time. And to preface this, I'm not a rap fan really at all. Um, but I listened to him and uh, it resonated with me, but it resonated with Curtis in a way that I've never seen somebody love an artist so much. Um, and when Lil Peep passed away, uh, at a very young age, how old was he when he died? 21. Yeah, he was 21 and he just passed, when, when did he pass away? It was like November. Yeah. So yeah, when he passed away in the fall, um, just showing up to work that day and watching Curtis deal with the news that his hero had died. So <laughs> this is a necessary story and I will tell this anecdote, but um, the day that Lil Peep died, all of us in our office, um, we had our department head meeting, which is once a week we sit around a table and we go around and we give our updates. And Curtis's head was on the table of our department head meeting like a depressed teenager. <laughs> And uh, we all had to go around in a circle and say what was going on. And then when we got to Curtis, he said, man, nothing fucking matters because my hero died today. (laughs) And it was just like, I'm laughing now, but at the time, like how you felt about it was so real. And I remember just instinctually you wanted to write about it. And you were, you pitched a couple of people, um, like larger news outlets Mm -hmm. to write this op-ed um, I remember it so clearly because we had a whole conversation about how the death of Lil Peep was really similar to the death of Kurt Cobain, a story that I still want to read. And um, you had all of these ideas, and I just wanted it to happen for you so bad because um, because I knew that that story was going to be good, and I knew that I wanted to read it. And, I mean, as the freelance and writing community goes, um, you got a couple rejections, which, I mean, I know that feeling all too well. But it's like, long story short, my point is, is that the confines of journalism telling you that you shouldn't write about things that you care about, especially mixing personal bias with interviews tends to confuse people a lot. Um, But I think as an editor and as somebody who runs a paper and maybe as you're listening to this, whoever's listening to this right now, maybe you're going to disagree with me, but that's okay. I think that the best writing comes from when you love something and when you're attached Mm -hmm. to it. Um, and when you're upfront about your bias, you said from the get-go in this story that Dylan was your friend. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which I think as a reader and as an editor makes me trust the narrative a little bit more. But it also, like, there's also the hand in hand that uh, we expect our readers to have media literacy. Yeah. And to know that as you're reading something that this story might be written with, like, with, an, with a bias, I guess is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I mean, and, like, all that kind of stuff, I guess, like, it has its time and place and, like, proper function. But especially with a story like this, like, what's uh, what's what comes negatively out of like kind of promoting the community you know what i mean yeah nothing i would hope yeah like uh, so i don't feel bad having this like stake in the story and i also feel like without having that vested interest i wouldn't be able to tell it as accurately mm-hmm. you know yeah but like a lot of it and i talked to a couple of people after i wrote it i kind of used like a I kind of interjected myself in a little bit just on the periphery mm-hmm. not quite like fly on the wall like i was still somewhat involved in the story but not like actively making things happen but it was like it, it kind of like harkens back to why i even thought of journalism as a career option and i know it's going to be like a total cliche but um fear and loathing in las vegas like <laughs> i read that book when i was like 13 and then it's not even like that doesn't even feel like journalism honestly it, it feels like a weird fucked up fictional narrative but it's like I mean, whether or not that story's fictional or non-fictional, like he's involved in the story, and it allows him to tell it. It allows him to tell the story in a way that you couldn't tell it if you were trying to, you know, yeah. remove yourself from well, it. That's why that's one of the reasons why I've said in my whole career. And I mean, I can't speak for you, but I think that you and I approach writing in very similar ways. Mm-hmm. Is that I don't think I could ever be a news reporter. Like, I get it, like, but, like, it's, like, what I'm saying, there's a function for it. If I'm reading news, I don't want an opinion in my news, you know what I mean? Yeah, and there shouldn't be. No, definitely not. Like, this type of writing that I'm talking about right now is long-form feature writing, and I think that's where people, people tend to get confused, because I've had flack for my writing before, um, with people asking me, like, what kind of story is this? Is this an opinion story, or is this an article? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, it's long-form, it's long-form feature writing. Which I think you and I, that's when our best writing comes out. If you read anything that I write for the community edition, it's going to be it's it's going to be something that's a little bit larger to digest, which I also think is when your your best stories come come mm-hmm. to light is when you have a larger word count. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately, like with this story, you put so much importance on the narrative being told. Um, and like, do you think that it's, do you think it's because you're involved in this community because you know these people or is there something more to it there? I think that's like, that has a lot to do with it. Like there's my own, like my own personal gain aside, I'm not going to lie. When this story came out, I started, like, I realized that like a lot of people would read it mm-hmm. and I was like, that's, that's pretty tight. I took some of the pictures and my name's on it and that sort of thing. It is our top read story so far. Yeah. I wanted, yeah. wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. It is out of. Yeah, it does have the most view counts currently right yeah, now. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations. Not surprised. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Lots <laughs> of great stuff. Too, <laughs> Lots of great stuff in this issue, yo. Yeah. Honestly. It is. It's a really good one. I'm proud of it. Um, yeah, but what was I saying? Um, I just asked you essentially why you felt it like it was important to tell this story. So like I, like I said, like I realized afterwards that there was like a lot for me to gain from it personally. And just like like a lot of people came up to me after and were like, Yo, I didn't know you could write like that. We're like very surprised because like people have seen me around like with a camera or doing whatever, and like they don't really realize what I'm actually doing there. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from my own music, 
people are kind of starting to like draw the lines. But anyways, when I was like first putting together this story, I was just thinking like Chris and Dylan and like and Stacy and like like Kyle Wappler, who I also interviewed for the story and yeah. like Kyle's partner Jamie, like all these people, like everyone that goes to Elvis Freshly, everyone that supports shows at like Harmony Lunch, like all these people are like they're putting so much of their own personal time into making stuff happen for the community. And it's just like, I wanted to highlight that more importantly than anything. Like a lot of these people aren't necessarily personally benefiting off of stuff. They're just like, I want to get bands here that people want to see. In a monetary sense. Yeah. Like to be clear, a lot of these people in this story are not making money. Yeah. And like, like, I don't know, I can't say who's making money and who's not. Cause I don't like, I don't personally know, but it's like, it's, there's something about, it being more of a community thing, getting people to come in, like it's like getting getting people something to do on Friday and Saturday night or whatever, giving people like options of shows to go to and like actually bringing in performers that people want to see, like really mm-hmm. want to see, mm-hmm. like lower level as well, obviously, like that's, that's a big thing, the underground scene. Where can people find your music? Um, SoundCloud, at Steve Dave for Life. It's like a four and life is spelled with a Y nice. also. Um, I'm on like Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that, but you can also find my music on like three nine three nines bandcamp dot com something like that three nines dot bandcamp three nines yeah awesome You'll yeah you guys there. should all check out Curtis's music um even as I said not a huge fan of rap but I love Curtis's mixtape it's great and his album re- release party was super fun it was one of my favorite events that I've been to so far this year so you should definitely check out his music um and while you're at it pick up the may issue of the community edition uh it should be fully distributed by now you can get it uptown downtown at laurier campus kitchener city hall um anywhere really that you buy like a bougie coffee in the region you should be able to find a copy of tc um thank you so much curtis for first of all writing the story for me um i know that it took a really long time for the story to come out and I know that I was very pushy (laughs) no 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 I like after I wrote it I said this to to my girlfriend to Taylor I was like I need that's what I need I need an editor who sees the potential in me and is willing to put up with my bullshit (laughs) (laughs) and it's but like that's the thing it also helps that I'm your friend also (laughs) but you but that's what I mean like you saw the potential in me like if if I approached you and you had no idea who I was three months ago and then I kept dropping this story I would have been a little irritated yeah you'd be like fuck this guy he's like he's not he's not doing anything to help me with this he's not working with me but maybe well, either way, it was just, I needed someone who understood. It know? was really worth it. It's one of, um, I've been the editor-in-chief of the community edition for, I guess I would say maybe six months now, and it's one of my favorite stories that I put out. Um, you're, obviously, you know, I'm one of your biggest fans. You're a really talented, great writer. Uh, so hopefully we see more from you. But until then, yeah. thank you, Curtis. Thanks for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. And yeah, make sure you pick up the May issue of the community edition on stands and around town today. TCE Radio is a product of The Community Edition, Waterloo Region's independent monthly. TCE Radio is produced by Alistair McClellan and Kara Lucas. Your host is me, Beth Bowles, the editor-in-chief of The Community Edition, and our publisher is Lakin Barton. Thanks for listening.